2: Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health and this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Reflecting on this, I decided to follow her advice, and I noticed profound changes in my own dogs. Enhanced energy, healthier skin, and an overall younger demeanor. It's truly heartwarming to see them so vibrant and full of life. Go to badlandsfood.com/hometown and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's b a d l a n d s f o o d dot com/hometown. How would you feel about pulling up a lawn chair to watch a nearby explosion of an atomic bomb? Believe it or not, this used to be common. When the U.S. government chose a nuclear testing site about 60 miles outside of Las Vegas, the city did what it did with just about everything else. It turned it into a marketing campaign. It used the proximity of these massive radioactive disasters to get more people to come to Vegas. Las Vegas and Nevada historian Mark Hall-Patton, who you may know from the History Channel show Pawn Stars, is here with us again today to discuss atomic tourism and overlooked Las Vegas stories. I asked Mark how an atomic bomb could ever become a tourist attraction.
1: The fact was that once we got the test site here, the it was something that we saw as a positive. That was something that it brought in, well, one, it brought in money. That's always a positive. But it also brought in a, a large amount of jobs and a, a large amount of very well-educated individuals. And so that was a positive in the community as well, and it was interesting because the community at one point, shoot, the county logo had a mushroom cloud on it at one point in the 1950s. This was, you know, just something that we did. We the the AEC used to talk about radiation as sun units. We were learning about what these were about. And if you were somebody of of some renown, I remember interviewing the first woman vice president of a scheduled airline who was vice president of Bonanza Airlines here. They would invite folks like that to come out and view an above-ground test. So this was back in the 50s. And you'd be miles away from the test, of course. And she was out at one of these. She said she didn't, she couldn't remember most of the people that were there, but she remembered that the fellow sitting right next to her was the governor of Nebraska. And these folks would come in from all over the country. This was a really cool thing. We're going to go see a nuclear bomb going off. Wow. And they were sitting there and, and they were all giving given these dark glasses and they had the little radiation tags and all of that and they're sitting there and their handlers telling them okay now you have to turn your heads you can't watch the exact time of the explosion the, the that point because it's that's way too bright but we'll tell you when you can turn and turn back and watch it and, and so everybody turns their heads and okay you can turn back and they they all do and They're watching the cloud go up, and they're they're, watching these little streamers. And one of the things about a nuclear blast is you see colors that you will never see otherwise. It's it's just something really quite amazing to see, uh, apparently, in person. it's amazing on film anyways. But she said it was, they're all sitting there and they're just kind of watching this thing go up and they can see the shock wave, and they're miles away. I I think she said it was five or six miles from the the site of the blast. And it's going up and up and these streamers of stuff is coming down and all of that. And it's just amazing. And the the blast wave is going out and it keeps going up and the blast wave keeps going. And eventually they have miscued on this one last wave hit them and knocked them all out of their chairs and they're laying there on the ground and they all got up and kind of brushed themselves off and and they I guess swept them off or whatever and and a, I was interviewing her in, in an oral history and I said well didn't that bother you and she said no we, we, we're we just kind of wow look at that I said well <laughs> I didn't what did you say? She said, Well, what I remember is we were all saying, look at the power we have. And that's the, the thing of it it was at that time before we really understood all of what was all that could happen and what how badly it could go. The community just used it for advertising. I mean, They would take mannequins out from Sears. There was a Sears down on Fremont Street. And they borrowed a bunch of mannequins, took them out, put them in one of the houses for one of the above ground tests. And then after the test was over, they decontaminated them, brought them back into town and put them in the front windows of the store. So you could walk down and see them. And they would have atomic sales. And there's the famous uh, photo of Miss Atomic Bomb, which wasn't any kind of a contest. They just grabbed this showgirl out of one of the the casinos and said, Here, put on this bathing suit and we'll take a picture of you. And and it was done as just a photograph to use in advertising. And they would do things like, make up that they did that floating craps game photo that's one of the famous photos which was just a made-up thing they didn't have a floating craps game but they made it up and then they would do something like that and airbrush in the atomic bomb blast in the background of the photo and a lot of those they would just add in the a-bomb or the nuclear uh uh, the, the cloud in the background or they would do ones where they would set up on NewsNob out at the site and do a live feed to the television so that you could see it live on your television. And once in a while, they would miscue and break a couple of windows in Vegas. and They'd replace the windows for you. It was something that it wasn't until really the mid-60s that you started getting people protesting out there. It was interesting how late it was before you started getting protests. And even there, it was kind of interesting because a lot of times you would have wives on the protest line and husbands in the buses going to work at the test site. And it was just, it was an interesting part of life and was kind of, just part of life, because people had you know had family members, and not just scientists out there. But if you were in the trades, if you were if you did construction, if you did concrete, and you did electrical wiring, and you did any of that sort of thing, nearly everyone ended up at some point working out at the test site. You know, the real problem was if you had to drive out there. It was a two lane road, and it was a blood alley. Driving out there and driving back because normally folks were just they were driving stupid, they were driving 80, 90, 100 miles an hour, and you'd have you end up with coyotes or cattle on the road, or you'd stop at the nearest bar for a couple of drinks and then get back out on the road. And there were a lot of people that were killed just driving back and forth, but yeah, it was. It was another thing that could be advertised, so um,
2: we would do that. One of the most surprising things I learned on my last trip to Las Vegas was that the strip is not actually Las Vegas. When we refer to Vegas, we're almost always referring to the crowded strip of casinos and theaters right in the middle of town. That area is called Paradise, Nevada. Paradise is at the center of Las Vegas, but it is not Las Vegas. I asked Mark to help me understand why this is the case.
1: So the properties that started out on the Strip, basically they're all in the county of Clark. They're not in the city of Las Vegas. And they are there because the taxes were lower. So the property was cheaper, taxes were lower. And if you bought property there, most of that property had the water rights that came with that property. So you could dig a well and bring up water at that point. Some of the the properties like the Bellagio that has the, the water show there. That's a very shallow aquifer right there. So they, they reuse the water that's right there. It's not the water that we can drink. So it's just reused. It just goes with the property there. But the the Paradise Township, Winchester Township, Spring Valley Township, that township construct was created in the state legislature as a way of keeping it from being annexed. Initially, the city didn't care. The city of Las Vegas is actually a fairly small area in the Vegas Valley. But when they saw the tax dollars that they weren't getting, they said, oh, we'd like to take that away from the county and take those tax dollars. Well, the residents there didn't want to be part of the city. They had specifically gone into the county to be part of the county. And the county is a little over 8,000 square miles. It's a huge county. So they tried a number of times to annex the parts of the Strip, and the residents always said, no, we don't want that. And they would try different... Some of them... Obvious things, sometimes they would try a late addition to a city council meeting or something and just call political shenanigans sometimes, and people would get very upset. So in order to keep that from happening, this construct of the unincorporated city, the unincorporated town site was created, and that was created in state law so that it cannot be annexed. And so, yes, it says the town of paradise, but the town of paradise is part of the county of Clark, and it answers to the county commission. So it's Clark County. And one of the funny things is you will often see the mayor of Las Vegas showing up at the Welcome to Las Vegas sign, which is in Clark County. and. Sometimes they forget to tell the county commissioners, hey, we're going to go out into your territory and do something, do some kind of special event there. Sometimes that gets a little, eh, we need to have a conversation here, guys. But yeah, that's all politics. And it's an interesting thing because I ran the county museum system. And people would say well we need a museum of las vegas and it's like guys we talk about las vegas you're part of the county too trust me i've talked about you the county has been doing or the city has been doing a series of documentaries every 10 years literally decade documentaries on las vegas i've been in each one of them i have done tours of the city For them. It's not something where your history ends at your border. It doesn't work that way. And it's just kind of funny. It's like, but we want it too. You don't need to have one everywhere. Just add some money to the county museum and we can expand the exhibits. That'll work much more efficiently. And you don't need to have another staff out there. Yeah. But I may have a
2: point of view, too. Just in passing, I mentioned the name of Bugsy Siegel, the notorious gangster in connection with the Flamingo Hotel, which I thought Siegel had founded. Mark didn't have a lot to say about Bugsy, but I thought what he did say was funny, so I'm including it here. It wasn't
1: Bugsy Siegel. He was just a thug, and was really stupid, but he was a thug, so he took it away from Billy Wilkerson, who was a bad gambler and owed him money. And then he also skimmed money from the, his friends in the mob because he was a thug in the mob. And he got money from them, and then he skimmed and did a bad job of opening it and got shot for it. <laughs> you know?
2: At the end of our conversation, Mark mentioned something. I had never heard of before, but which took place in Clark County and Las Vegas, the World Endurance Flight. The World Endurance Flight is the longest
1: flight on record from start to stop. They took off on December 4th, 1958, landed on February 7th, 1959, flew 64 days, 22 hours, 19 minutes and five seconds without touching ground. Took off from McCarran, landed at McCarran. I still call it McCarran. But yeah. You know, and it's the longest flight ever made without touching ground. And it's just an insane flight. I, I, I love the flight. Oh, they refueled twice a day from a truck down on the road. And this was in a Cessna 172. So I don't know whether you've ever been in a Cessna 172, but They don't have bathrooms. They don't have cooking facilities. They don't have any of that sort of thing. So all their food was handed up to them. All their water was handed up to them. It's like being inside a Volkswagen Beetle, the old Volkswagen Beetle. So you had just the the pilot seat. You had two guys in it. Bob Tim was the main pilot. It was his idea. John Cook was his co-pilot. And you had to come down, parallel the road, drop down a rope, pull up a hose, put it in the gas tank. They had added a gas tank to the bottom of the plane, refill that, pump it out into the wing tanks, add oil to it once a day, add two quarts of oil as you took out and tossed the oil filter every day. And so by the end of every third day, you changed the oil. You had to use a little folding camp stool toilet with a plastic bag under it and throw that out the window when you got done with it. You had to stay steady for two and a half minutes while you were refueling. And the folks in the truck, you had one guy steering the truck, one guy sitting next to him, turned around with his head on the dashboard, looking up at the plane and handling the gas pedal with his hand. And you had to do this twice a day for basically 65 days. Their generator went out. So they lost their lights after a a month. So you're flying at night with no lights. It's an insane flight. And it broke the previous endurance flying record by just about 15 days. The previous one was 50 days and nobody's broken it since then. So, and I knew that the pilot was dead by the time that I got here. I knew the co-pilot. It was actually a pallbearer at his funeral. But he was just like the calmest person. And was just like, yeah, we did it. Yeah, it was fun. And it was like, are you nuts? And they, the first man-made object to to break that number was Skylab 2. So, but... These guys just said, I'm "Gonna do it." Bob Tim uh, decided to do it and broke the record. And like I say, didn't nobody's broken it since. You will find it in the Guinness Book of World Records. You won't find it in the International Flight Records because they had decided that they weren't going to list any endurance flight records after 1939. They didn't want to encourage people to keep trying because they were worried about people getting
2: injured. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I'd like to thank Mark again for joining me. I'll see you next week.